Hello folks, thanks for tuning in to the latest episode of Vinyl and Vision. Here we are with episode 68. My very special guest is uh, Felix Bechtelsheimer. I think I got that right. Uh, Felix, for the band Curse of Lono. That's what he told me to say, because, you know, people screw up the name, I'm sure, often. Um, Felix is a wonderful person. I was very happy to have this conversation with him. He is in the band uh, Curse of Lono, as I've said, but uh, they're from London, England. They're a British band. Um... Interestingly, interestingly enough, the album that Felix chose was another British band, a little band, I don't know, you may have heard of them, I don't know, the Rolling Stones, Exile on Main Street. Uh, what a motherfucker of a record. <laughs> I say that uh, lovingly, I mean that in a good way. Um, it's a great record, it's a double album, so just right, out, right off the bat I'm going to tell you now, if you're expecting to, us to cover every single song on the record, we don't. Sorry. We, I, I've cut it down, I whittled it down to very concise songs. Only eight of them we're covering, okay? So if anyone was expecting to hear some something, of, you know, or, or a ta- like tackle one of the songs, then you may not have, we may not have covered it. But uh, I think it was great. And it was a great conversation. Um, I appreciate Felix for taking the time, especially because I messed up and showed up late, but we made it happen, and it was a really great, con- candid conversation, and uh, very revealing, and uh, and fun, I thought. So, um, Felix is in a band, The Curse of Lono, and and um, it's a wonderful record. Uh, it's finally been released in its entirety in the United States, so you can listen to the entire album on all the streaming platforms, and um, I encourage you to do so, because uh, I won't do it justice just trying to describe it. I just encourage you to listen to it, and, you know, if you like it, obviously, you can buy it. They do have vinyl out. They have CDs, LPs, and uh, digital download anyway. If you just down, just do the digital if you want for now. Uh, wait till they come on tour. They may be in the United States, maybe, Felix says, most likely next year, uh, early next year. So, uh, you know, follow them on the social medias and all that stuff and get updates to, as to when they will be near here. Uh, they are going on tour in Europe. Uh, I believe that's starting May 10th. I could be wrong. You should visit their website, curseoflonoband.com, and see all those tour dates. And if you are in any of those countries and are in any of that path of their tour, by all means, go and see them. It should probably be a really good time. I'm looking forward to seeing them at some point when they come to America, because I don't think I'm going over there soon. <laughs> uh, when I do, I'll go check them out, for sure, if, I, if I'm over there across the pond. So, um, yeah, I, that's it, folks. Uh, I really appreciate you coming and uh, listening and watching, depending on where wherever you are digesting this media. And uh, all that we ask that you do here is uh, all the things you do with the internet. Please like, share, comment, rate, review, subscribe. On, on any and all platforms that you digest these things in. Um, we'd really appreciate it. Thank you very much, folks. Enjoy. Hey, man, how you doing? I'm fine, Felix. How are you? I'm very good, man. I'm very good. <laughs> all right. Well, hey, it's a pleasure meeting you, and thank you nice for, for joining you. me. How, how's everything in London going? Good. Can't complain at the moment. It's, I hope it stays that way, you know. We're, it's everywhere. We feel like we're free again. Yeah. Um, so we'll see what happens. But, cool. 
it seems to be okay. We've got our first tour starting not this week, but the week after, and we've got a little festival next Sunday. And the tour manager called me this morning and said, I've just tested positive. And I sort of did the calculations and I went, forget it. We don't need you for the festival. By the time the tour starts, you'll be okay again. (laughs) So, you know, I'll take that. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I wish you the best of luck. I hope nothing happens. Uh, No one contracts anything while you're out. Yeah, I know. I know. You you can't do anything about it, can you? You just got to go with it. Yeah, yeah. That's why, you know, just hoping the best, man. Yeah. So uh, so tell me a little bit about your your band, Curse of Lono. Uh, you guys have a new record out. Yes, yes. A record came out actually uh, end of last year over here in Europe, but it comes out in the States um, end of April. Um, okay. And yeah, it's been a strange time. We were releasing records quite close together. And then obviously with the pandemic, everything stopped. We had a lot of touring plans. We had a headline tour of Germany and other parts of Europe that was postponed three times and then cancelled. In the I cancelled it actually in the end because I thought it's not fair to if people have bought a ticket after two years they've got a right to change their plans. I think <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it's everything's been strange, like with all other bands, and we're now the records out and it's been a very strange release because we recorded it in a gap in the middle of this lockdown. And then we had to sit on it for a long time before it came out. Mm. And now it's been out over here for a while. And now we're finally getting to tour. And it's bizarrely, we're starting to get a lot of radio play now. But normally that happens before a record comes out. Whereas here, it's just all happening afterwards. So I'm, I'm disoriented, but I'm happy. Yeah. Know, so I'm, not, I'm not complaining. Right. Yeah. It's all kind of complications due to mm. COVID. Yeah. It's so strange. Yeah. So that's why it was a little confusing for me too. You know, I've read your bio and I've been trying to, to listen to that record, uh, mm. here in the States right now, there's like five tracks available, I think. That's all. Okay. I think so. I, I keep getting messages from fans over there going, why can't I listen to it? And, um, yeah, they've done, I, I, to be honest, that's all the label who sorts that stuff out. And they, it's the first time normally we release worldwide at the same time. Yeah. Um, but there was some, some nice interest from the, from various, publications and things in the states so i think they were just sort of getting all their ducks lined up and then working it out all right what we'll oh. do it all in i'm just along for the ride i just sing <laughs> the songs. are you really because uh, uh actually i looked into uh submarine cat i mean don't, aren't you involved with the label i am yeah well I'm, i sort of founded the label but um these days i try and take a back seat to it okay. i i've got a we've got a really good team who sort of do the running of the label i just I had a bunch of mates who didn't have labels and who desperately needed them and who had very good, like the first person I signed was John Murray. who's a good friend of mine mm-hmm. and he's one of my fav- favorite songwriters on the planet. And I was hanging out with him and I kept bumping into him at festivals and everyone kept going, Oh, that man's a genius, but you can't work with him. He's, he's crazy. So I was like, well, I, I'll work with him. And I think it was a month later I was, um, hanging out with the Alabama three who did the the theme song for the Sopranos and they're a cult band over here. So they play, you know, they play big shows. They tour every year and they've never gone away for 25 years. They've had that cult status and, but they've been making a living. I mean, they've been consistently releasing records, but they've been mainly making a living out of their live show for the last, you know, at least the last decade. Yeah. And I was sitting down with them. They said, Oh, we want you to, um to play you know some of the shows with us and they lost one of their founding members 
who passed away and they said, look, we'd like you to play at the wake, you know, the, the memorial thing for him. So we did that. And we were talking about records and they said, oh, I wish we had someone who could help us put a record out. And that was just after I had the same conversation with John Murray. And I said, you know what? Life's too short. Let's just give this a shot. Yeah. And we got a really good team in place and managed to get lucky and sign another couple of acts, one who I'd been a big fan of for a few years. And it's now growing very rapidly. There was, it was just me to start with. And now we've got a full-time team of one, two, three, four, five full-time members now, full-time people at the label and a whole bunch of other people cruising around, helping making it happen. And I'm sort of lucky that I'm allowed to go off and, make my own records and go off on tour now and not have to worry about it too much <laughs> yeah well that's that's your main passion right i mean that's kind of why you got into music in the first place it is but i mean you know what it's like if you make music you, you make friends with people who make music and then sure you want to every every musician wants a family you know mm-hmm. um and i like crazy dysfunctional lunatics who no one else will work with so um when everyone else gets out, we're not dealing with those people. I'll go send them my way and we'll give it a go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Has it, has it, and it's all worked out well so far, huh? Like, uh, none of well, the, yeah, none you know, we've had bumps and it's been up and down, but, you know, at least it's not boring in, in Submarine Cat HQ. Yeah, that's great. Um, so, listen, I've, I was looking for the record. I was looking to see if there a way that I could listen to the entire new record because uh, I looked you up on Bandcamp mm. and I read a quote that you had on there. And it had, and it said, within reference to your new record, it said, uh, for people in cars, you say that uh, we're all in these, we're all in these bubbles. Yeah. So how is your bubble right now? Well, I think the bubble's bursting because I think we're, we're stepping out, you know, we're actually allowed to go and play shows and do stuff. But yeah, we, I think, yeah. I think we are, you know, and I think that it resonated with me, but especially during the, the whole lockdown thing where I don't know if they called it that in, in the States over here, they called it your, this is your bubble. And it oh. was your bubble was a, that was a, I, th- I mean, I think pretty much a legal thing even where you were allowed your, I think it was two or three people in your bubble. And those were the people you were allowed to have contact with, but no one else. So mm. people had to choose their bubbles. They had to choose whether we hang out with these grandparents or these grandparents. You know, right. because the risk to keep the risk of infection down. So right. that was a whole thing. If you were caught going for a walk with someone with a can of beer in your hand, um, it would be like, are you in the bubble together? You know, and it, I, I don't know. When I then saw these photos of um, Mike Mandel's photos from People in Cars, his photo book, mm-hmm. um, it's all these people in their cars. And I just thought they're, they're little bubbles. It's every car has one person or more who are in a relationship or they work, they work together or they're in a family or they're in an argument or, you know, whatever it is, there's all these little stories. Every car that goes past this intersection, there's a story inside. There's something that that person or those people in that car are experiencing at that moment. And the photographer is sort of trying to peer into it, but he, 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 obviously with the camera, you can't work out what's actually going on. And I found that really interesting. And I found it in a w- weird way, it resonated with me during that time when we were all in these bubbles and we couldn't see people. My, I was down at my um, my mum's place during the lockdown and she wasn't there. And my sister lived 20 minutes away, but we weren't allowed to see each other because we weren't in the bubble. And then slowly things eased. So it, it was just something that was constantly on my mind at the time. And I just thought it was a really cool representation. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, it did make sense too, Bami, because uh, we don't, I guess we didn't call it that here in the States, but I definitely heard people talking about it in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear that uh, it's it's even internationally now because you're you're in London, that yeah. uh, all of these restrictions are loosening up and it just... Yeah, it, I mean, it, over here, there's very little restrictions now. You can pretty much do what you want. Yeah. Um, I know I was over in Italy last week and there you still had to wear a face mask on in the bus and on the plane and at yeah. the airport yeah and i had sure. to fill out all sorts of forms to travel whereas over here you can fly into the uk without having to worry about anything now oh really okay yeah cool i don't have any plans to do that soon but uh, <laughs> at some point i'd love to yeah <laughs> it's been a long time man i haven't i haven't been in london and since 2001 i don't think oh wow yeah, yeah, and I spent some time over there. I was dating a girl that was going to college uh, in mm. Egham. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what was that? Royal College of the Atlantic, I think it was called. Yeah, I don't know. I know where Egham is. I don't know what the college is over there. Okay, yeah. So I spent some time there in London, and then bounced around to around some parts in Europe. Nice. It's beautiful. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Especially <laughs> when the weather's like it is at the moment. It's great. Yeah. Very cool. Um. So look, so I asked you to come onto the show to talk about a record that was important to you and influential yeah. to you. Uh, you chose the Rolling Stones, Exile on Main Street. Yeah. Tough one, man. This was a tough one. Oh, man. <laughs> it's, it's it, yeah, I, I wouldn't know where to start on that one, but it's my, it's my, I, I don't know. It's my, it's, that's my album. You know? Yeah, yeah. That's, and I've, I've I seen you mention it. any bar anywhere on the planet. If that, if that record's playing, I feel like I'm in my hometown, hometown you know, it's just, yeah. I've, and I've listened to that album, I have no idea how many thousands of times, and I always pick out something new in there in the background. It's got so many layers, that record. Oh, yeah. Right. And it's mixed in such a way where this, this the, the crazy thing. I always think, God, if I was mixing this record, I'd mix it totally differently. But it wouldn't sound as good. My instinct would be, sure. no, you've got to turn that up. You've got to turn that down. But it's it, it, it sounds the way it does because they did it the way they did it. And I yeah. think... It's it, no, for me, it's it's a masterpiece. Yeah, of total yeah. chaos. And I don't know if you've seen that. There's a documentary about it um, made by a guy called Stephen Kaijak. And there's they're talking about how the band would disappear into the basement of Villa Nelcott to do their sessions every night. Yeah, and it would sound absolutely horrible. They said it was just the most awful sounding racket that you've ever heard in your life. And then some time at like four or five in the morning suddenly they go yeah i think we're ready for a take and then they they do something but the rest of the time it's just total chaos yeah and it, it just it represents everything chaotic and debauched that turns into something beautiful for me it's just i just think it's a it's it's the most decadent sound hmm. that i've ever heard on a on a record I think I think you're right. I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. And now speaking of that kind of like uh, that chaotic uh, response to it, or the kind of like, you know, kind of uh, appreciation of the chaos that that this mm. recording was. I mean, what uh, how did you get turned on to this record? Oh, man, I don't know. I think I when I left school and I got thrown out of school and I moved to London, there was a bunch of kids I was hanging out with and. I, you know, the school I was at before, everyone was listening to, you were either into techno, you know, electronic dance music stuff, mm-hmm. or you were into heavy metal. And, you know, I always, I, I liked, you know, I, 
Misfits and my Black Sabbath and Guns N' Roses and all that stuff. But I always loved the Stones. I always loved the Beach Boys, which everyone would laugh at me for. I was the only only kid, you know, decades after they'd, you know, they'd made their hits. But I'd be driving around with the windows down, listening to the Beach Boys on full blast. So I always loved that kind of stuff. And I, when I came to London, the the people I started, the Misfits, I started hanging out with and playing in bands with, mm. were obsessed with the Stones. And it was, but it was, you know, Beggar's Banquet, Let It Bleed. Um, Sticky those, fingers. That, yeah, sticky fingers as well. But it was, yeah, it was mainly Beggar's Banquet and Let It Bleed. And and then Exile on Main Street was the one that everyone was just um, I suppose my best friend was more into Beggar's Banquet and Let It Bleed. But for me, Exile just had something, and it's a long record. And it was a oh, double, yeah. double album when it came out. And yeah, you don't skip around that, you just turn it on and let it play out and then you probably start again at the beginning so it's, it's just I had a lot of great parties for that record oh, and I it bet. also got me through some very difficult times so it's sort of mm. it's been with me it's been a very very good friend to me for for a very long time yeah I see and uh, and so what was music like for you growing up I mean you're saying that you got turned on to this record when you moved back to London when you left school was that high school yeah that was high school I got thrown okay. out of high school when I was I want to say 17 um, and I, before that I'd listened to the Stones, but I, it was more the earlier stuff, you know, I knew Satisfaction, yeah. I knew, um, I knew the big hits. Sure. Under I My Thumb, stuff like that. Yeah. I didn't okay. get under the surface really. And, um, growing up, it was very tribal. I think much more tribal back then than it is now listening to music. Mm. I think back then you were either with these people or you were these people. And there was a few indie kids out there who sort of liked a bit of both but sure. you couldn't be friends with someone who liked the other stuff that didn't work you right. know you, you were in your tribe whereas now I just don't think I, I mean well I see it you know the, the 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 kids who come to the gigs and especially some of the younger artists we have on the label it's not that tribal people want to try a bit of everything mm. you know, they want to they want to find what what turns them on not be dictated to you know yeah. but you have to have long hair you have to wear a leather jacket and you have to drink jack daniels and then you're with us or you have to pop loads of pills and you know rave all <laughs> night long in the corner and, yeah. you know, <laughs> uh, with, a, with a rave whistle around you you know blowing into a whistle and yeah. then you're with these guys it's, i think it's it's much more open nowadays but for yeah. me back then it was quite tribal and i sort of fell into this rock crowd but then i didn't i wasn't fully into all of that as much as some of my friends were Right. Um, and then, yeah, when I, when I moved to London, I got kicked out of school and I moved to London and met people who, who were living and breathing the music thing a lot more. And that's what where I got turned on to a lot of that kind of stuff. And, and Exile was one of those, one of those records. Mm. Okay. And have you always been a musical person, like ever since you were a child or when did you start no, learning music? Not really. I mean, my parents were not big on music. My dad had a very small record collection, a lot of Johnny Cash, a lot of Harry Belafonte and hmm. a bit of ABBA. Interesting, yeah. And, um, you know, he loved the Beatles. My mum loved the Stones, but there wasn't that much music, but it was my grandparents who both played the accordion. So, okay. and, but it was, I, I grew up in Germany, so there's a lot of this sort of German oompa loompa music. And I, as a little kid, <laughs> I'd dance around. And music other than that was very much like the other kids. And I then, I was at boarding school and, I, I was having a really tough time at school. I was really, really tough time. And one of the older kids came into my room and said, come with me. And he, he took me to his room and he gave me a 
couple of shots of vodka and he put on Nevermind the Bollocks by the Sex Pistols. Hmm. And I was just completely stunned. I'd never heard anything like it. And then when it finished, he made me listen to the whole record and then he gave me another couple of shots and then he put on Pink Floyd, the final cut. And they're obviously very different bits of music, very different styles and genres. Sure. Um, but it was, for me, they were uh, two sides of the same of the same coin because they were both protesting they were both yeah. angry and disillusioned and disenfranchised in a way hmm. but in saying it in different ways but the message i got from that was one people are pissed off about stuff and they sing about this hmm. and there's more to music than just i love you baby i miss you baby spend the night with me baby oh my god I'm so sad you've gone baby you know there was just something yeah. much more than that and it was amazing I mean it was amazing and then the same guy then had a, he had this horrible nylon strung acoustic that he couldn't tune properly and he started playing pigs on the wing by Pink Floyd and something and I just suddenly went I can do that and and it it was just something because I was it was a very different system that I was angry with um obviously you know the Sex Pistols were against the whole, um, the the actual governmental system, the societal system. You know, right. that's a different thing. And the same with Pink Floyd; it was a very political. The Final Cut's a very political record. I was mm. pissed off with school. I was pissed off with the injustice of having eighteen-year-old kids beating the shit out of fourteen-year-old kids, and stealing your food and telling you what to do when they had absolutely no right to do that. I was pissed off with people my own age um, telling on each other at every, there was no, no one had any loyalty to, to each other. Hmm. So that yeah. was the system I was pissed off. It was a totally different thing to the pistols or to Pink Floyd, but I sort of went, yeah, I'm with these guys. I like this. And I went home for the school holidays and I told my dad, I, I need a guitar. And he was going, you don't play the guitar. And I go, yeah, I'm going to learn. And he goes, bullshit, you're going to learn. <laughs> and in the end, I dragged him to this guitar shop and I, I begged him and he said, look, I'll do a deal with you. I'm going to get you. And it was a Squire Stratocaster. And he said, I will buy that for you. And if you're still playing it every day in a year's time, it's yours. And if not, you pay me back. And he said, uh, he said many years later, it was the worst mistake he ever made because I never (laughs) put the thing down again. Um, But yeah, showed him. Yeah. And for me, that was something that was, I just, it was really important. And that, Music then grew. It wasn't just, yes, of course, my friends then all got into, you know, Metallica and all this stuff, which is very angry, um, you know, rock stuff. And I get that. But I, for me, I'm not saying the Pistols is, is intellectual. It was just shocking. I'd never heard anything shocking like that. Sure. Whereas Pink Floyd, I was really drawn to the words. I was, I was just amazed by that they could come up with stuff like that. And hmm. so, yeah, yeah. that's that kind of started my journey then. And then once I got that guitar, my, my roommate, um, he was having a hard time. He bought a bass and we made the most God awful racket for the next, I don't know for how long. And, but we had a lot of fun with it. And, but it was, that's when I got seriously into music before that, I was just like any other kid listening to a bit of pop. Right. Okay. So now about this record again. So I I found something kind of unique about your choice because you know i've been listening to your catalog i've listened to everything that you've put out so far i'm pretty sure you know the ep mm. the uh, as i fell record yeah. severed 
and then the songs that I've heard off the new record. And uh, they're very different styles of music, it seems. You know, I mean, like the what, what Curse of Lono does doesn't seem directly connected to like something like the Stones, Exile and Mainstream. No, it's, and you're right. You're absolutely right. And I used to, with my old band, Hayden Greta, we tried to get a bit closer to it. It's very, very difficult. I've, I feel like one of the things with Exile on Mainstream is you listen to the vocals and the shambolic nature mm-hmm. in which stuff comes together and just sounds amazing, but it's quite, it feels rough around the edges. And yeah. I think that record has been studied by people for decades, trying to recreate, how do we get our vocals sounding that loose and that tight at the same time? And Mm. it's a really difficult thing to do. I mean, you kind of have to be Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. I mean, there's no, it's just their magic. The the backing singers on there as well. And I don't know, we tried to analyze it once. We were going, is it that they're really tight, the backing singers, so Mick can just veer off deliberately. And we we never really worked it out. Mm. So I try not to... Exile on Main Street gives me, has given me an awful lot over the years, as have the Rolling Stones with their whole catalogue. Um, but I don't try and recreate that, and I don't think I could. I have tried on previous records. I've had songs where I go, yeah, I could be a bit stonesy. Hmm. But it, it always falls short of the mark. They're, you know, that's that's something I don't, you know, I don't try to, to imitate. It's just something that's, you know, you have records. Right the soundtrack to your life that are for segments of your life and exile's been there for me all the way through that's why that had to be the record for this show that that i wanted to talk about yeah yeah well i've I've heard you mention it a number of times and then uh, Mm. a bunch of interviews that you've done in the past so i mean it obviously does is very important to you and and i can see why i mean it's a great great record Mm. i mean and i don't and i don't put any weight behind what an artist creates and like what kind of influences them to get there because it can, it's so much all the time, always. Yeah. But, uh, but it's just kind and of fun. I don't fun. think you can control what comes out. And I, I feel like with this new, this new record, People in Cars, it's the closest I've got to um, peeling back all the layers of the onion and just being completely honest. Mm-hmm. Um, I was so broken when I went in to make that record that I just didn't care anymore. I had, and I, the whole world was collapsing. And in my personal universe was collapsing and I was just, I just needed to make a record. I needed to go and do something to take my mind off it. And I just think it was, it's the closest I've come to just me. And I think the reason that that may sound pretentious, but I was trying to work out why I think that. And I think Mm. it's because I sing. Um, It's the closest to my talking voice that I've ever sung. I don't know if that's why, but that's why hmm. it just feels very natural for me. Yeah. Because it's almost, it's in the same range and with the same amount, I don't pu- push my voice at all. And it's just sort of f- flows out. And I, yeah. uh, that's why it's quite an important record to me. I couldn't have made, if we if I'd written a record like Exile on Main Street, there's no way in hell I could have recorded that at that time. I needed to do something a bit more, yeah. you know, gentle and and considered, I think. I, yeah, right. I and mean, it makes sense. I mean, I, I've, I've read about some of the tragedies that you've faced during the or prior to the making the creation of this record. And, and it makes sense. I mean, uh, it's it would be hard to to be able to make something stones like, you know, yeah. something with the, the it, upbeat it tempo. Be, it wouldn't have been possible. <laughs> and I mean, I was lucky there are some upbeat songs because obviously I was writing this record 
before we started recording. So at that point, yeah. it was it was interesting. It's, it's it's very much a record of two halves, and you know both in terms of writing and recording, and they don't completely align. But I was writing this. We just had an amazing year. We did, I think, two US tours. I don't know how many times we went to Europe. Hmm. Had the be- the most successful headline tour of the UK we'd ever done, um, and then ended that 2019 with um, three big anniversary shows with Alabama Three, which were just you know, two and a half thousand people, and it was a wild party, and it was amazing. Yeah. And so yeah. I was writing during that time, and so there was some upbeat stuff going on, you know, and some the more rocky stuff on the album is all from that time. And then, you know, very at the beginning of 2020, obviously the the COVID thing hit and that mm-hmm. was very, I was meant to be on a long tour of Europe and that was, we could see everywhere closing down and I was like, okay. And my dad had just gone into a coma yeah. and I was, I called the promoters in Germany and I said, guys, I can't do this tour. And they said, you have to. And I was like, look, every country is going into lockdown and I cannot afford to be stuck in a van in the middle of Europe and not be able to get home. My dad is in hospital and we had a big argument. And in the end, I was like, you know what? I'm not going to cancel the tour. I have absolute faith that the government's going to cancel all tours anyway. (laughs) And they did two days later, everything was shut down. But um, my wife had COVID very early on. So we, we we went out to the countryside. Uh, I took the kids, my wife and, you know, went out there and then my dad was in a coma he came out of that and then took a turn for the worse and I was very 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 lucky to be able to fly to Switzerland in the middle of the first lockdown and go and be with him on the last night on his last night um Mm. which was one of the most difficult things I've ever done and one of the hardest things I've ever witnessed seeing someone in, in so much pain yeah um but I was very grateful that I was able to do that I was very grateful my mum didn't have to be the one who had to be through that, had to go through that. And most, I know people who lost their parents and lost loved ones during the pandemic and were not able to do anything. They weren't able to be there for them. So I was very, very, it, it, of course it was a tragedy, but it was, it was, I was very lucky to be able to do that. Yeah. And I, we lost my, my uncle four weeks after that. And then in August that year, I lost an ex-partner of five and a half years and uh and my band split up so <laughs> by the end of that I was just like man this has been one hell of a year yeah right so, um you know we and that was hard the you know we'd made the first draft of the album and I kept writing they didn't want no one wanted to put a record out in the middle of the pandemic so I kept writing and then the band members started going into full-time day jobs and some weren't very happy with the direction it was going in uh, musically and so in the end, we had a good chat and I said, listen, you're, who wants to commit to touring and doing that? And no one was really up for it. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to carry on this, this project with this project as a solo project. And I, luckily, I got everyone's blessing and went back in the studio and recorded the songs that are getting all the airplay now, luckily. So otherwise, <laughs> it would have been embarrassing if it had come the other way. But, yeah. you know, it's, it's um, yeah, it was a very difficult time, but I yeah. needed... I needed um, to make a more introspective record, I think. And yeah, yeah. The, the later songs that were added to the album were, were very much about. Yeah, and and it's a beautiful record from what I've been able to hear so far. I mean, yes, it's it's. Uh, I can I can feel a lot of your your struggles and your pains and your griefs mm. through the music. Um, your singing voice is excellent. I mean, you. You, you're very reminisce, reminiscent of uh, Leonard Cohen. Thank you. I'll tell you, that's a huge 
That's a huge compliment. Yeah, I wanted no. very much because I don't want to scare people who are listening to this off by thinking, oh my God, it's going to be one of these miserable records oh, yeah. with someone howling about. It's I very much tried not to do any of that. It's a, I tried to keep the the singing style very conversational and sure. it's storytelling and it's there's very there's hopeful moments on the record as well. So it's not all downbeat. Yes, um, no, absolutely. It was just the, the space I was in. And some of the songs are a little bit sad. Sure. But, um, but, but not all of them, you know, so. It's human, yeah. you know, I mean, because I, I think I that so, lyrically, yeah. you're, it, it, it can certainly reach, to pe- reach people uh, in certain and different ways, you know. Mm. So it, I think it's great. You did, you did a great job. Thank you. Um, so now I was speaking about the differences between Exile and Mainstream and what you do. And actually yeah. there are some kind of like parallels I feel like uh, maybe if not through the music directly uh, just kind of lifestyle things things that have been happening to the stones at the time that they were recording this and obviously some of the stuff that you've gone through yeah it, not at um, the time of uh, just a disclaimer not at the time of making this record <laughs> no no I mean not, no. yeah not exactly I think, I think yeah I mean that's true and and some of those themes have come up in this record and I always swear that I will never write about that stuff again and every time I make a record there's a couple of songs that pop, poke their heads above the water but for some reason some part of me some sinister part of me wants to revisit that time when I was you know living living that kind of lifestyle as well okay know? and I think well, we'll talk about that because I definitely had some questions I mean it's obviously yeah. it's no secret you know of like what you no know, I'm like... you can ask me anything and sure sure if I don't want to answer, I'll just pretend I, I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, I think I'm losing you. This connection's gone really yeah, bad. Yeah, sorry, I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> no, I won't, I won't be that, that uh, pressing. Oh, I don't mind at all. Okay, well, um, so let's see. Uh, we should probably just go ahead and get into this record. Uh, let me ask you one question before we start. Mm. Um, so Keith, Records, uh, Keith Richards has been quoted about this record saying that things were changing and I was no longer interested in hitting number one in the charts every time. Uh, what I want to do is good shit. If it's good, they'll get it sometime down the road. So uh, at this point in your career, do you ever consider legacy? Uh, it's pretty, probably all I consider because I've never had a number one record and I don't think I'll probably <laughs> ever get one. So um, a large chunk of what I consider is um, what will the kids, my grandkids and whatever say one day? I've, you know, I I always have this mad as an American artist called David Ramirez and I did some shows with him out in Scandinavia and he, he did this, a song. Um, I think it was his grandmother or great grandmother. And they found out that she was a songwriter and he'd never met her, but he found this out mm. and he managed to get hold of some of her music. And it was just magical to him. And I always wonder what will happen if one day a grandchild or a great grandchild discovers that, you know, the granddad or the great granddad was a bit of a lunatic and he yeah. went all over all over Europe, all over America, touring with his band, various bands, and he wrote this stuff. And that's it, that is that's important to me. Hmm. And the I mean for for my kids, it's very important to me as well. And but I also I very much what Keith said about exile resonates with me because that was very much not that I was aiming for number one in the charts, but I, you always have that thing where you go, oh, I wonder how this song would go down in a big venue, you know, or a big festival or this or that. Because I was beaten when I started making this record and there was no prospect of any live music. And people were starting hmm. to, my agent was saying, 
God, I wonder if we're going to grow up with a generation of kids who never go to a gig because we didn't know what would happen. There was no vaccines or anything at that point. They didn't know. Right. And so the only thing that really mattered to me is making something that I was really happy with and Mm -hmm. that Holly based in my producer and my main collaborator that he was really excited about. And unfortunately that probably didn't help me much with my ex bandmates because I didn't have the headspace to deal with what 18, well, not it was 18 of them, but four of them and, and everyone else and these people and the people at the label, what everyone thought it was just like, no, we're going to do something in the studio. The studio is here at my house. We're working here and we're going, if it makes us feel something. And that's when we know we've got it. And who gives a shit if it's going to get played on the radio? It does, really doesn't matter. You yeah. know, who cares about all of this stuff? You know, it doesn't, it just doesn't matter anymore. Right. And um, so I get where Keith, I mean, for Keith, that's a bigger sacrifice because he was making number one records. But for me, that, and I felt that made, that freed me up a lot. Yeah, yeah. Well, see, that there's a peril exactly. I mean, that, that's mm. very, that's very Keith, I think. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so um, one more thing I was thinking about before, before we start, um, the Stones. Okay, so you are from London. I guess you, you were raised in Germany, you said, but yeah, uh, but are you considered yourself? And then about, I moved over to the UK when I was nine, so I've been okay. here most of my life. Yeah. Oh, okay. So I mean, so the the Rolling Stones is like a is like a local band to you. Well, I think by the time I was old enough to see the Stones, they were a global phenomenon. You know. Well, yeah, but I mean, but they're a London band. They're an English band, right? You know, I mean, yeah. how does that? How does that? Uh, what is that like perception like in England of of the Stones? I don't know if. I mean, yes, they are a London band, but do you not think that they're so godly that they're just—it doesn't even matter now, aren't they? I don't think yeah. people go oh, those Brit- that British band. It's just the Rolling Stones. Oh, okay, um, yeah, that's how I see it. I mean, but that said, when I, you know, I've read every book about them, I've watched every movie about them, and the early days in London, obviously for us, that's that's key. You know, it's sort of that they were part of that British movement, but I think by the time. I was old enough to connect with them. They were just such a big phenomenon. It didn't really, it, 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 the, the London connection, it, it's still there in the background, but it's not as big anymore. Yeah. Oh, okay. Cool. Well, uh, so now you chose Exile on Main Street. We're going to try to talk about it. It's a double album. There's 18 yep. songs. So I, I tried to, to get do... a copy out. So I've got the, uh, so I've got the track listing in front of me. <laughs> well, so I, I mean, I try to do myself a favor because yeah. I was, I was blowing my mind over it. I was just like, this album, this album's super long. It's an hour long. It's, mm. there's so many songs. I'm going to try to just dissect this and cut it down. And I cut it down to eight songs that we're going to cover. Okay. Now you're, I'm, I'm sure that you have some songs, so I'll give you one. I'll give you one. If I don't, if we're not going to cover, I'll tell you the list. If we're not going to cover it, I'll give you one that we can cover that I am not prepared for. How's okay. that sound? That sounds good. <laughs> All right. So now I, I try to cho- choose two songs off every side. Okay. And I did that specifically because what I read in, in one of the books and the research that I was doing was that each side of the record kind of has a specific vibe to it and it kind of flip-flops there's the so like the eight like the first side of the record is like this it's the party and then the b side is like the hangover yeah okay there's the there's the uh, rock and roll side a and then there's the cosmic americana side b okay all right so the list that i the songs that i chose was side a rocks off and rip this joint yeah Side two, Sweet Virginia and Torn and Frayed. Oh, yeah. 
Side three, happy and ventilator blues. And then the final side, shine a light and soul survivor. Cool. So is there one that you, that we're not going to cover that you think you would like to cover? No, I'm I'm good with those. Sweet. That sounds I'm great. I'm, I'm, yeah. All right. Well, I at least wanted to give you the opportunity because I know that I've spoken to people in the past and skipped songs and they were like, oh, that's my favorite song. No, you know? I'm I'm good with that. Okay, great. Well, then we'll start off with the first song, Rocks Off. Mm. It seems fairly evident that this song is filled with drug references. And uh, as to whether Mick had these lyrics in praise or in criticism is debatable. So um, why do they make doing drugs sounds so deplorable lyrically, but so exciting musically? That's a good question. And I think it's, I think it's very hard to, um, I think without being there when they wrote it, it's hard to know, isn't it? Because there were so many different camps. You had the heroin camp of Keith, hmm. Sam popped over, you had Bobby Keys and and his guys and, and whatever they were popping at the time. Mick, I presume is on more of a Coke, trip but was probably sure. not that impressed with the the smackheads not turning up for the sessions right. and so i don't know to what extent i don't know what point the lyrics came in or if they were brought in later i don't know enough about the process but i mm. think it's very difficult to get away with i think especially back then to sing about drugs quite so openly yeah. To then try and make them sound glorious would probably be even harder to get away with, is my point. <laughs> um, and yeah. I don't think they were glorious. I think Keith was in a lot of trouble at the time. Oh, yeah. And there was a lot of bad stuff happening. There was a lot of unhappiness in the camp. There was a lot of tension and friction between the band members, I think. So I think it's probably that the intellect this is how i read it is the intellect is saying this stuff's bad kids whereas right. i'm blasted and i'm rocking out you know and that's right. kind of you know but i'll have another one please sir sure, you know sure. that's kind of what i read into it and i mean rocks off what a way to start a record i mean there's no you know ambient introduction or right. you know easing in i mean this is just straight in from right. the top they just, they just introduce, yeah. like, this is what it's going to be, guys. And when you've got a record that's an hour long and you just go, no, we're going balls to the wall, we're straight in there with this, it's, it's pretty, I mean, it's pretty spectacular. I agree. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, it's a great record. This is a great party record in general. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you can't and go wrong. And it's one you can put on in the background and some people be sitting there listening, other people be swaying along, other people just be having their conversation, doing whatever, and it just, it just glues the room together, I think. Right, right. So now, uh, you know, I, I don't want to bring a lot of attention or, or focus a lot on the whole idea on the concept of like, you know, drug use, because this record is just, it's just so heavy in it, really. I mean, like every song almost has some kind of like drug connotation almost. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, I know that you've had experience in the past, obviously, you've had you've uh, experienced some some trouble with it and, and recovery. Yeah. Um, so so like I said, not focusing on it, but I do want to mention a little bit of it because mm, it's curious i'm curious too i mean i've never been a big user i've never yeah. you know i don't mind a joint here and there but mm. i've never gotten into hard stuff um 
did you do much writing while using? No. Oh. <laughs> Short yeah. answer. I sure. was, um, no, I tried for a little while, but it didn't really, it wasn't really any good. And I, yeah. I, I'm not very good at, um, when I was on heroin, I was not really able to do anything else. Um, my partner at the time, she was at times able to hold down a job. I held a job down for about three weeks and then they, that, and, that, and that was a disaster, a complete disaster. I was, you know, I had to, I kept missing my train to get there and I was, you know, turned up armed with loaded syringes in my pocket, in my suit pocket to try and then go to the bathroom while I was working. I was a disaster. So the idea of me making any kind of, I was in a band when I started um, doing heroin, um, but I got fired because I just could not sing. There was uh, Geffen Records in America were interested in the band, or so I'm told. It didn't. I didn't last much beyond that. It was. It was just a bit of a disaster. Mm. So I. I couldn't. Uh, Keith says that he did some of his best writing in his early years of addiction. Um, yeah. He's he's a better man than me because I didn't come up with a single thing that was worth keeping. During yeah. that time. And I right. gave up. It didn't take long out of the five and a half years I was using. I think I probably dabbled with music for the first year of that. And it was not very good. Hmm. And after that, that was it. You know, okay. Yeah. Because uh, is using as far, as far as an inspiration is concerned, is it overrated? And from what you're saying, it sounds like that kind of is. Well, I think I've probably got a lifetime's worth of um, stuff to write about. Sure, sure. From what I um, experienced, and and that may sound like I'm glorifying it. I'm not. I'm talking about the losses. <laughs> not you don't write about this great high. I mean, I I've never found any use for writing about that. Yeah. But there was a lot of losses um incurred there's a lot of people i know who are not i knew who are very close to me who are not here anymore so there was a lot of, and and going that deep down when you really just don't think you can get out you don't think you're going to survive and people are dying all around you and you've just overdosed for the sixth time in six months and you just don't you're you know stuck in a mental hospital in germany not quite sure what's going on anymore hmm. you can write about that for many years but during the time, it was totally useless to me. So right. I don't recommend it. <laughs> Good. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it makes it because unfortunately, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a fan of rock and roll. Okay. So I've been, I've been following it along for a long time. And it just seems that like it always is some, it's something that kind of is ever present. And you hear about these people that are, fam, you know, fantastic. They're, they're amazing writers and, and so forth that create these amazing things and, you find out that they've been like strung out the entire time that they've been doing it, you know, and it's just so strange. I think that that's changing. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't, maybe I'm, maybe I'm sheltered, too sheltered these days, but when I was growing up and when I got into music, okay, for, for me, a large chunk of it was rebellion. I wanted to you know, rebel against whatever it was. Um, so I liked the idea that these guys were drinking Jack Daniels snorting lines off their amplifiers and all that stuff mm -hmm. i was a part of it you were i remember my best friend who's sadly not around anymore and he was in a band and i was in a band and we always did gigs together we weren't making music as great as the people we admired we weren't i mean i know that you know we yeah. were not having the impact on our audience we didn't have that audience we were not famous 
So how do you try and convince yourself when you're 17 years old or 16 years old that you're one of them? Well, I can get as high as things, you know, or at least you think you can. And it sort of became a right passage. You kind of had to, it felt like you had to be, if you weren't, there were people who weren't into drugs, but then they were drinking heavily and you had to sort of be seen to do all that stuff. The kids nowadays aren't like, I don't know what it's like in the States, but over here, hmm. they are half the kids they oh no i'm sober this month and i'm doing this and i'm eating right and i'm you know and it's about the music and i'm told my best friend's a booking agent for some big acts very big sort of global acts mm-hmm. and he says they couldn't do that anymore the schedules the pressure the stuff that comes with making a living out of music at the top just doesn't work with that you won't right. yes if you're that big and then you know, nowadays, and you can carry on. But you, they, he says it'd be very hard to get to the top nowadays if you did that. These kids work. They have to be on 17 different social media platforms and do interviews all around the world and collaborate and make videos and be on TikTok and God knows what else. It doesn't really suit. I mean, a, a junkies are notoriously lazy. You don't, it doesn't really, <laughs> I can't imagine sitting there you know, doing a hit and then getting on TikTok for five minutes. It just wouldn't, wouldn't happen. So I do think it's changing. Okay, cool. I think that's great. Uh, let's move on to the next song, Rip This Joint. Uh, not to get too descriptive, I suppose you could say this song is a bit of a tribute to America and the Southern states in particular. Mm. Uh, you've spent time here in this country, right? Yeah. What are, what are your thoughts about some of this land and what then that you've explored? Well, I think, I mean, I, I don't want to, obviously I came to America on tour um, probably 40 years after the Stones did, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so it's a very different country. But I think my guess is something, there will be some similarities. It felt like a movie. My first US tour, we landed, we played in New York um, at the living room and then went down uh, Virginia, um, trying to think i can't remember all the bits north carolina um nashville we did it there was a few more but i can't remember them all now and then all the way down to austin to do south by southwest and then the next one we toured with tony joe white and we went all the way up the west coast um okay it felt like a movie because you'd seen these landscapes you'd seen these diners you'd seen these bars and cars and all the stuff that you guys take for granted out there we knew that from the movies and now you're in a van with four of your best friends on the planet playing drinking beer and playing music and people like it and you're just like this is like fucking movies and I think for the Stones it was a different thing I think the Stones they conquered America back then and it was obviously their place where they made a lot of money. They spent a lot of time with a lot of lovely ladies, took a lot of drugs mm-hmm. and sure. lived the dream. And I think by the end, also the nightmare, by the time it came to, to exile on Main Street. Oh, yeah. They were sort right. of, America was a huge thing. And they were, you have to remember, the Stones started out of a total and utter passion and dedication for American music. That was what they were obsessed with. You know, yeah. when Mick and Keith met, it was about, oh my God, you've got that right. Oh God, let me play you this. 
right. and trying to work out how to sing and sound and play like these um at the old blues artists and that was a big thing over here in the in the uk in the 60s i know that i had um had a, a long conversation with Steve Winwood about this quite a few years ago, mm-hmm. because a lot of people don't know this. When Steve was 14, 15 years old, um, the, the rule over here was with the Musicians Union that when an artist, an American artist came here, only the featured artist was allowed to perform. So if it was, I don't know, any big blues artist, they were not allowed to bring their band. They had to use British musicians Oh, okay. when they went on tour. And Stevie Winwood, at the age of 14, 15, was out there playing the Hammond organ for all the big blues legends. And he learned like that. And he was a little white kid from Birmingham, Britain, not Birmingham, Alabama, you know, and he, he, you know, he had his first, I think his first number one record at the age of 15 sounding when you heard that, when you listen to I'm a man or give me some loving, you go, that sounds like a, an old black man. And it was a little skinny white kid who's 15 years old from Birmingham, you know? And so there was a whole scene over here with these, I've, I've read a lot about this you know yeah where sure. they were just obsessed with american music so for them to finally actually get to go over there and have people like them um i think must have been an incredible incredible experience right right plus i mean you know they were huge music fans and and of american music Absolutely. specifically you know the blues and now they're traveling these lands yeah. that these people that that are their inspirations came from yeah you know so I, that's why i kind of curious how like how did it feel for you traveling around this land like you know exploring these parts i think of... it was the same just probably a bit watered down but we we were sure, just sure. in in it was bliss that first tour was just i mean it was it was just incredible i'd never i think it was you know one of the best couple of weeks of my life it was just absolutely magical to be it's stuff you didn't think you'd ever get to see and yeah it was it was like living in a movie it was amazing Cool. And then now, so on the other side of the coin of this song, uh, the breakneck pace of this song and the overall punk feel of it, right? Um, makes me feel like Rip This Joint is a way of describing like a great rock and roll performance. Yeah. You know, it's so intense. Uh, can you tell me about either the greatest rock show you have witnessed or performed? Cool. The greatest rock and roll show I've witnessed or performed. So hard. Um, the Stones are definitely up there. Yeah, and when when would that be? I first saw the Stones on the Voodoo Lounge tour in okay. ninety. I want to say that's ninety four, probably. Okay. 90, well, maybe a bit later, ninety five, ninety six. I can't All remember right. now. But it's mid nineties. Um, it wasn't the greatest rock show I've ever seen. I'm trying to I'm trying to think now what that could have been. There've been so many. Um, the Pixies. First time I saw the Pixies at yeah. Brixton Academy. First time I saw the Pogues. Are the Pogues rock and roll or are they too Irish? I don't know. I think they qualify but, as rock and roll. Yeah. Oh, that was just madness watching them. That was, well, see, that's the thing. That, that it doesn't even matter what genre it is. It, 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 where's the madness happening? You know. That's uh, that was that was just incredible i saw bonnie bear the first time he played at the green man festival over here five thousand people and you could hear a pin drop that was not rock and roll but yeah I mean, it was it was, it was just powerful very very powerful very total magic i'm now cheating if i'm t- saying too many you know? <laughs> that's um, okay and the greatest show i've ever played 
it's hard to it's hard to put it down to one but i have to say the last show of our uk tour in 2019 the last headline tour i did with my with the with the previous lineup of the band was down in a little place in in bristol um which is called the louisiana and the louisiana i think holds 125 or 150 people that's it hmm. it's tiny okay. but they pack them in so tight there was people who bought tickets who couldn't get in and uh. this place everyone from amy winehouse to oasis to the white stripe like everyone has played at this place it is just one of those places that when you first start touring you play the louisiana and it was sold out weeks in advance and it was just i mean that whole tour was was crazy but that was an amazing gig yeah and there was one other one in on that tour up in glasgow where it was halfway through the second song or third song it's a quiet acoustic song and every single person in the room started singing every line of, of the song. And then they, mm. didn't, they didn't stop for the rest of the show to the point where we had to take our in-ear monitors out because we just couldn't hear ourselves anymore because they were, they, we had ambient mics up and they were shouting into those. So it's like, right, get this off. So, but I think that that show, in, I remember my a drummer saying to me, that's how you finish a tour. You know, that was just, it was electric in there. It was really electric. Yeah. And so, so maybe that's the one. That sounds good. Yeah, that definitely fits the bill. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the next song, Sweet Virginia. Oh, man. That's, uh, that's one of my favorite songs of all time. And that was one of my... I had a few battle cry songs when I moved to the States to get clean. To, to, you know, I went into... I didn't actually do rehab out there. I, did a, I went to detox and then mm-hmm. went into a halfway house. And one of the battle cry songs I had for that first few months of agony coming off the stuff was was sweet virginia so it's uh wading through the waste you know i was just that was my one of one of those songs the other one was actually willing by uh, by little feet was one of the other ones and there was a few but but sweet virginia has been been with me and you know it was with me before then but during that time it became really important yeah willing oh yes yes what a record yeah i just I have I had just happened to have this sitting by <laughs> I'd never I'd never heard of Little Feet when I moved to the States and my uh one of my roommates was obsessed and got me completely hooked on them. So Yeah. Oh okay. Yeah, I I've listened to that one before actually, but uh it's not too too oh, close. Sailing shoes and um it, it's it's a that's a beautiful song. That it's a great it's a great record though. Okay, well, I'm going to put it on soon anyway. That's why it's over here. (laughs) So, um, yeah, let's see. Sweet Virginia. Uh, So, like I said before, the drugs are always finding a way into these songs, right? Uh, But moving away from the simple motif, this song has been described as being hopeful. Uh, And and the, the shit you have to scrape off your shoe, as disgusting and bothersome as it may be, is merely a distraction from the bigger picture. So, uh, what kind of shit have you had to scrape off your shoe? Oh God, what kind of sh- yeah? What kind of shit haven't I scraped off my shoe? <laughs> <I> <laughs> yeah, mean, better question. Haven't you? Scraped? I mean, in uh, it's hard to. I think the time when that song was most important to me was a very, very tricky time because I had moved to the states to get clean. I would, I'd just I'd spent eight days in a government-sponsored experiment in a mental institution in Germany where I'd signed up for it. 
um, on opiate addiction and it did not work out. And it was the lowest I'd ever been. I, I have nowhere, I didn't have any place to live anymore. Um, I, my, my partner at the time was sleeping with everyone she could get her hands on, <laughs> it seemed to me. Yeah. And um, I had absolutely no money, I had nothing. And I moved over to the States. My uncle took me in and then I, they got me into a, a detox ward. I'd overdosed so many times, I had abscesses down my arms. Um, and, you know, and people were dying. A lot of my friends were dying. In the first mm. couple of months, I was out in in America. Um, a reasonably well-known TV presenter who I was very good friends with um, had passed away from an overdose. And it was my dealers who supplied her. And it, it was, that got quite difficult. I was in a halfway house and, and suddenly I had a call from the press wanting to talk to me. Um, my ex-partner at the time was was sort of trying to hide out from the press because she, she was involved in all of this hmm. and trying to rebuild some kind of relationship with my family, having not spoken for so long. I didn't really have any friends left. Yeah. And I was suddenly in South Florida where it was fucking hot and <laughs> I was sweating and I was really unwell and I was coming off heroin, methadone, barbiturates and alcohol and it just felt like death and listening to that song um just i don't know for some reason it was one of those songs when um when i when i put it on i could just you know get me going for a little while and i had this thing at the time where my my uncle had a little jeep wrangler and he would lend me the jeep and i would this is once i'd completed my first couple of weeks of detox and i was allowed out during the day and I had a pile of stone CDs with Exile was always at the top. And I put that on the passenger seat whenever I felt really bad or temptation was coming, knocking on the door. Mm. I would just drive all the way along the ocean, A1A, as an hour, all the way to Miami if I needed to and, and back again until I felt better. And Sweet Virginia was one of those songs that just made me go, come on, you can do this. Get, get through another day. Yeah. So it's, there was a lot of shit to scrape. Uh, I don't think I finished that. I don't think you ever finished scraping the shit off your shoes in this life. <laughs> well, at least you can like bask in some of the the positive right now. Like now yeah. you're in recovery and now you're you're doing much better and now you have a family and the band's yeah. you know picking back up again and yeah, definitely. So yeah, it's it's something that's kind of no, like it's where you're very gonna... positive. I don't. I'm not uh, in any way. You know, I don't wish it on anyone, but I also don't sit there and bemoan what what happened it's you know it's part of who I am and it's part of my my crazy story you know and it's and, and I'm very lucky I'm very very lucky that I got out of that and that I get to sit yeah. here and talk to you and um you know put the kids to bed and and go and play a festival next Sunday and do all that stuff so you know I'm, I'm one of the lucky ones right absolutely I agree with you all right well let's move on to the next one torn and frayed yeah the title says it all doesn't it <laughs> Kind of, yeah. I mean, it's 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 definitely got some poeticism in it. I mean, I think that lyrically, the song kind of covers a lot. Uh, well, not not a lot, but just kind of it, it can be taken in a couple of different ways, you know. Mm. So um, I've learned that this song could be about a down on their luck musician just trying to get by through the drab and murky club circuit. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really like these lines, though. On stage, the band has got problems. They're a bag of nerves on first nights. Mm. Do you ever get nerves these days? Yes. I do. Um, I, I'm not. Yeah, I do. I get nervous. 
um, it tends not to be too bad once I'm actually on stage. It's I get nerves. Go, oh my god, we're going on tour and yeah. doing this, and I'm like, is it going to be any good? And are people going to like it? And is anyone going to show up? And am I going to forget my words? Am I going to forget my chords? Mm-hmm. Um, so I do get I do get nerves. Um, for me, that I don't know. It feels like the Stones at this stage they have so many internal tensions and here they do the opposite of what's expected they don't go to a big studio to make that hit record that everyone wants to prove to the world that they're still number one they do the opposite Mick and Keith despite all the tensions just spend this time with you know Mick Taylor and and, and Charlie and all the others they spend all this time just making and writing this record and it must have felt to them a little bit like going back to basics and mm. it's, a, it's sort of a bit of an anthem. It's everyone, those, those lyrics that you just quoted, everyone who's played in bands sort of relates to that in some ways, don't they? And they sure. almost make it sound, they make that shaky, shitty gig sound kind of cool because it's Mick singing about it and Keith playing. Right? You know, it's sort of, it, it's, it sounds like it's cool to be there. Right. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it's certainly about kind of... Um like a down on the luck musician paying their dues if nothing else yeah. you know um so i wonder uh, if it's so if it's autobiographical as well well see that's the thing where i'm saying that the song could kind of be taken in a couple of different mm. ways because from what i've read in the research i mean it's it could be argued that it seems like mick is actually kind of singing about keith mm. because he's kind of like this not, he, not that he's down in his luck. I mean, obviously he's very successful, but uh, you know, with the with the but he was struggle with, with the stuff that was happening with the with the heroin and, and yeah, you know, wasn't it around that time that he was having he was potentially facing jail time and he was facing yeah. not being yeah. able to get back into the states again and there was all sorts of maybe that yeah. came slightly after, but it was around that time there was all sorts of stuff going on. Right, he had a lot of problems with his relationships at the time, you know. Yeah, um, so I think. Yeah, it, it kind of. That's why there's a there's a line in this song I can't remember exactly, but it's something about so long as the guitar still plays, like what I forget the the words. Yeah, she can steal your heart away. Is that it? Something, something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then that's kind of like what it seems, or he's kind of like in tribute to Keith. I mean, because mm. as long as that guy's still kicking, that band yeah. still has a still has a chance. Yeah. You know. Um. So, what about any any of your earliest performances? I mean, what was one of your earliest performances? The early performances were were um, pretty drunken, um, shambolic affairs, and I yeah. I think people they were very busy gigs, but they weren't busy because the music was great. They were busy because we were teenagers, and everyone wanted to make out with someone. So that's where the party was at. You know, yeah, yeah. it took us a while to realize that just because hundred or two hundred people show up doesn't actually mean that anyone likes your music. They're there because so and so is going and that one's going and she's looking hot tonight and he's looking good tonight. And you know, and there's probably going to be a good after party. And yeah. um so the early performances were a party. Yeah. You know? Okay. Yeah, right. That I, I, that actually sounds very familiar to me. Yeah. Those, <laughs> those teen days, teen shows. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well let's move on to the next song, Happy. That's one of my favorites of all time. It's such a great song. I mean, Keith, you know, (laughs) Keith's on the mic and it's, um, and I don't, I I probably should know this. I should have 
double checked what the official lyrics say, but I remember at one stage thinking, I need a lover to keep me happy. Or, but I think officially it's, I need your love to keep me happy. But I used to. Or, I think it goes either way. I think there might be two, two phrases. Is that? But I think there might be. Yeah. I'm going to have a look. I'm going to have a Google it after this. But I remember it was a sort of thing that I, I wasn't really, at the time it was, you know, that was pre-Google when I got really into this and I couldn't work out whether it's, I need your love to make, to keep me happy or I need a lover to keep me happy. So I don't know. Um, but it's just, it, that, is, that song is just pure Keith. That is my favourite. I mean, my two favourite Keith songs are Before They Make Me Run, and um and happy and and happy hmm. is the one for me that is my, yeah you know i think it's beat. a great one yeah. yeah so uh let's see uh happy i think the obvious thing here is the speed and simplicity in which this song arrived mm-hmm. you're you're familiar how kind of fast it came mm. in a in a very i guess a very traditional kind of keith style yeah um what's the fastest you ever written a song Um, there's one song um, that I did with my old band and never played it live I, I, had, I went through a very painful breakup and the morning I, I think it was the morning after we I split up with this girl I did, to be fair, I had a chord change that I'd been playing around with nothing no vocals no lyrics no nothing just a riff and that song i remember it's called sunlight hits your eyes and i woke up so upset and hungover and you know the world was a terrible place mm-hmm. and i grabbed my guitar and i started playing it and I, this chord change came and i and i wrote all the lyrics and i wrote the entire song and I called Hugo, who was the guy who was in Hey Negrita, my, my previous band with me. And I said, I've got this thing. I need to come and play it to you right now. And he goes, well, what now? We're not meant to, I'm in my underwear. And I said, I have to come over and play this to you. So I played it to him. And he was going, well, he said, I love it. What are we going to do? And I said, well, let's record it. And Hugo was a multi-instrumentalist. And so we literally, I wrote it that morning, played it to him. We did a quick arrangement on it. I said, I've got an idea for a solo chords. And he's going, cool. What are you thinking? This and that. And we, we I literally wrote and recorded it all in one day whilst mm. spending some of that time in tears in the corner. <laughs> so it was, that was pretty, that's pretty quick. There's yeah. been a, a few others which have happened very quickly. The song Valentine came very quickly mm. and almost fully formed. Um, the last song on the on the new album, which is it, it's strange because it's um, it's nine minutes twenty long, I think. Um, but that song, I was sitting there. I pressed. I often do this when I'm noodling around on the guitar. I press record just in case anything comes, and I can't recreate it. Sure. So I did that, and I started just singing anything that came into my head of this chord change that kept repeating. And none of it had been planned at all in any way, shape or form. I was literally just noodling around and I recorded this thing and it went on for 23 minutes, anything that came into my head. And I then came back to it. I turned it off and went, that was a waste of time. And the next day I listened back to it and I went, there might be something here. And I, rather than writing new stuff for it, I spent the next few weeks 
reducing it and taking lines out mm-hmm. and just and I changed the key but that song came out fully formed it was just too long it had to be edited down oh wow but that was a very strange I remember the the images in my head of my dad it was a week after my dad passed away images of my dad and then images of my son and just how fragile life is now quickly it can disappear but that that song literally came out that like that yeah I just had to cut bits out to make it work on the record how weird that is the strangest it's a a really weird one (laughs) we don't don't do that one live it's it's too too freaky for me all right well that's cool though I mean that that's that's a it's just a beautiful thing because you know you never know kind of when or how a song is going to come and that's just one of those ways so very cool so um there's more here in this song uh there's something to be said about the very telling lyrics in regards to keith's personality Mm. um so here's something that i'm going to try for the very first time we're going to play a little game called do you think like keith okay (laughs) (laughs) so um, i don't know what i don't know if if i want to think like him or not (laughs) but let's try it I, yeah, I think I think it'll be telling. Uh, so, you know, just taking the lyrics from the song. Uh, well, I never kept a dollar past sunset. It always burned a hole in my pants. H- how are you with money? Do you do you spend it as soon as you get it or can you can you save it? I've got better. I used you... to spend it quicker than I could get it. Oh, OK. I, uh, be, I, I had a lot of debt for a long time, but I've got better. <laughs> I've got I've got I've got family now. I have to be better. Uh, I'm still... Yeah. That changes I still everything. don't plan as well as maybe I could, but I'm, I have got a bit better. So okay, yeah. uh, I never made a. Think, I used to think like Keith. <laughs> <laughs> In that regard, let's see. Never made a school mama happy. So, uh, school, good or bad? I was good to start with, and then very bad. Okay. <laughs> uh, never. Well, blew I a mean, si- I you know I I got the, the I, my, I remember my parents came to one of those parent teacher things. And mm-hmm. they were over the moon. They said, they want you to go to Oxford. And I was like, right. I said, I'm not, I'm not doing my exams. And they go, what are you talking about? They say you can, you're allowed, because the school had to allow you to try for Oxford. They wouldn't let anyone do it. Right. And, and I was like, no, I'm going to, I'm, I'm leaving after, the, after this term and I'm going to be in a rock and roll band. So every cliche in the book, but my parents were, yeah, they were not impressed. <laughs> needless to say they're going you're mad but um so no i don't think i made them particularly happy most of my school career all right uh never blew a second chance i've blown a lot of second chances i think okay so yeah uh always took candy from strangers yes sadly yes <laughs> i remember there was a, a t- <laughs> i remember so- someone a guy much older than me was in the pub and I was seven, I was 18, I think at the time. My girlfriend was 17. And this guy, I only found out later that he had, um, you know, he had, he had my girlfriend in his sight. So he came over and go, Oh, Felix, how are you doing? Here, let me get you a whiskey and take a couple of these. And I was going, how much are they? And he goes, no, they're free. And I was like, Whoa. I didn't even ask what it was. And I was like, Oh yeah, now have one of these and another whiskey. And next thing, I was on the floor. I couldn't move. I didn't know what my name was. And uh, yeah, he was walking out the door with my girlfriend, lo- looking at me going, look, he's a disgrace. Look at the state he's in. And so I definitely took candy from strangers. <laughs> okay. Whoa. Um, didn't want to get me no trade. Never want to be like Papa, working for the boss every night and day. Yeah, no, I know. That's why I make music. Yeah, very opposite, huh? Yeah. 
Okay. Well, then that, that's it. That concludes that round. Keith like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You have some some similarities, but yeah. uh, but you know, I think you focus on the on the better stuff, the the more positive things, the less reckless stuff. Yeah, certainly nowadays. Yeah. Right. All right. Next song, Ventilator Blues. A name that was possible that was most likely drawn from the fact that the basement in the Nelcott uh, villa was very poorly ventilated and became yeah. sweltering quickly. Yeah. What was the most difficult recording situation that you've been in yet? Um, there was an album we did with my old band, which we had a studio, and um, it's an old record label that I had, and we had a studio, and it was just finally had it at that point where it worked great hmm. and it was in the basement as well and the shop above us was changed from just a shop to a hairdressing salon and they installed a light bank with all these lights with dimmers and it made all our equipment hum oh. and we were meant to be making this record and the the, the album was ended up being called the buzz above because it was just buzzing everything you plugged in would buzz so we then had to make the record when the hairdressing salon shut we had to start our session in the evening and work through the night yeah and then, you know and it was it was a disaster an absolute disaster the, the record ended up sounding good eventually but it was it was a very very difficult situation when every time you're ready right you know, that was that was probably the worst yeah, that takes away from the magic, right? Because then you yeah. have to kind of like plan to to, yeah. to work as opposed to just working whenever you whenever you feel it. Yeah. Oh well, that sucks. <laughs> is that record available? Where can I find that? Yeah, I've got a copy here actually. Oh, there okay. Hey, agree to the buzz above. Um, should be should in theory be available still on Amazon. It's definitely on Spotify and. Okay, uh, so I can listen to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, I will do that. I tried to get rid of most of the buzz, so hopefully it's all right. I'll I'll see what I can turn. I'll I'll listen to it with the headphones on. I'll see how what it comes out like. <clears throat> All right, uh, next song, "Shine a Light." Oh, well, it's just you know, I I saw them play that um, when I went to see them the first time on the Voodoo Lounge tour. I saw them at Wembley Stadium, and mm. Mick said, "Oh, we're going to try something we haven't played in a long time." And they played that song, and I was in floods of tears. I yeah. was crying like a baby. Right. It was just, I don't know, I can't even put a finger on it. I just think it's just, for me, I, I don't know. I couldn't, there wasn't, yeah, I couldn't put a finger on it. It was just, the tears just were flying out of me. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it, some songs have that feeling, yeah. right? They do that to you, and like, it's unexplainable sometimes. Yeah. It's, huh. it's just, a, it, I think it's just a, it's one of the most beautiful pieces on this record because you've got that, like Sweet Virginia has a real tender side to it as well, mm-hmm. that acoustic thing. But this has got something sort of bordering on gospel to it. And it's right. it's not chaotic. It's it's just very calm. And yeah, I, I, for me, it's one of my favorite songs of all time now. Yeah, yeah, I can I can see why. Uh, so this song, uh, a now legendary song in the catalog, and also a touching tribute to possibly Brian Jones. Mm. Um, in the lyrics, Mick sings, make every song your favorite tune. Mm. 
considering some of the recent loss that you've endured, uh, if there's one thing you could hope for, any of them, what would it be? If I, one thing I could hope for... For anyone that you've lost. What can you hope for them once you've lost them? I'm not sure. Well, because in this song, like, you know, the lyrics make every song your favorite tune. I mean, I feel that's Mick singing that to Brian Jones saying like, hey, yeah, maybe, you know. Maybe, yeah. You know. Um, God, what would I hope? I think peace. Yeah. Probably, um, it's all you can, it's all I could hope for the, for the people I've lost. Right. Yeah. Um, it's so weird what, you know, that idea it's always perpetually kind of in there yeah. somewhere rattling around being like well yeah. where, where are they what's what are they experiencing what's happening now yeah you know what will i experience when that count comes to for me and i just don't know if what they're experiencing is if they're in it i don't know i'm not you know i don't even know what my beliefs are with this but i'm just wondering would that we always think they'll be looking back at us right but maybe they're not maybe they're looking forward to the next mm. thing we don't even know yet I don't know. Right, right. Like a reincarnation. I don't know if you believe in that. Yeah, maybe. I don't. I don't really know what I believe. It may be reincarnation. It may be. Maybe they're onto the next big trip that we don't even know about yet. You know, who knows? Right. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I, yeah, it's it's hard. That one's a hard one. But yeah, I think peace. Okay. I that sounds think, good. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to the next one, which is equally kind of. Uh, uh, a tough one, difficult subject, soul survivor. Mm. Um, so this one, the, the lyrics here are slightly convoluted. Um, I guess the main takeaway, though, would be, again, being a theme of hope in the face of adversity. Um, having taken some of the experiences, experiences you've gone through recently and turned them into something beautiful and positive in your new album, People in Cars, what advice can you lend to people going through a hard time? Um, it depends very much what the hard time is I suppose uh, it, it, unfortunately it's always the cliches isn't it that ring mm-hmm. true that's why they're cliches and um, I've been in times when it's been very difficult where you break it down you know you always hear them say in, you know, in recovery one day at a time or just for today or whatever right that doesn't just work for booze and drugs and it's not just days i've had it when i've tried um i had in the, in the first week or two of of my time out in america where i was clinging to the bed and trying to get through the next five minutes because there was someone two doors down the hall who had exactly what i needed to make me feel better and um and it's just it's just hanging in there isn't it and you just don't know and you don't know if things might just get better. And if, if they don't, we're all going to be dead soon anyway. And so I hate to sound gloomy, but in a hundred <laughs> years from now, they aren't going to, not many of us will be there unless they actually freeze us or something. Right. You know? So yeah. it, the, the bad stuff will end soon enough, but you never know. And I found that recently, but when it's not a really, really, really hard time, but just when I'm having a, a you know, a, a, a really dark day, um, I sometimes find that I wake up the next day and the situation hasn't changed, but my outlook has. 
Yeah. And it suddenly feels manageable. Um, hmm. And nothing's actually changed. It's the same crap. But maybe you had a better night's sleep. And maybe I do a lot of writing. I, do, I try to write three pages every morning. Um, okay. First thing in the morning when I have my coffee. And sometimes a lot of stuff gets processed. And you go in and you go, that's all shit. I cannot deal with it. I cannot believe what's happened to my life. And 40 minutes later, you're like, all right, so what I need to do is this and this. And then, you know, and everything just feels more manageable. So obviously Mm. there are people out there at the moment, like at any time in in history, but at the moment, you know, obviously we see what's happening in Ukraine and and over here, that's all we see on the news. And we just go like, it's easy for me to say that, you know, safe here in London. And, you know, of course, so I'm not suggesting that, you know, this is applicable universally. I'm just saying for me that sometimes hanging in there for a minute, this is quite a useful thing. The other mm. bit of advice I heard in an interview years ago, not with a, not a music based interview, but it was an interview where they were talking. Someone was, um, I think it was Joe Malone who has the, the, the perfume brand bizarrely was being interviewed. And I was interested in what she had to say. And she said, they said, any advice for a, budding entrepreneur and she said never make a life-changing decision when you're not feeling your best and when life is getting you down don't Mm. make big decisions wait till you're feeling at least a little bit better before you do something stupid that you end up regretting and (laughs) and i think that's part of the same thing if if it's bad just dig in and hold on that's all that's what i've tried to do when whenever and and I try not to make any stupid decisions, massive yeah. decisions during that time. Just uh, just give it a beat. Yeah. And if you can, pick up a guitar or do something. And just and the, the, the writing that I do now every day is something that um, has helped me enormously. It's helped me sleep better at night. And I just write three pages every morning, anything that comes into my head. Just stream of consciousness. Doesn't matter. Coffee's good. Ooh, bit hot. You know, whatever. You know, <laughs> Um, I'm still yeah. pissed off with so and so. Oh shit! I forgot to do that email. Doesn't matter. But I always find that the first half of page is just rubbish. By the time you get to page two, things start to come up that are clearly bothering you under the surface. And often by the end of page three, I've resolved it, or I'm, I sort of know what I need to do. And it's been a practice that's really helped me through. Mm. And when my, my when I watched, you know, I watched my father, you know, die in front of me, having spent the whole night with him, I couldn't sit down and write two verses in the chorus about that that's not possible um but i could write stream of consciousness and a lot of stuff came out and bizarrely a lot of what came out there ended up being some of the best or my favorite lyrics and most honest lyrics on the album so i didn't sit down and write this you know and trying to create something it just came out like that and you know so i I find that's a really helpful thing just to write any anything but yeah. with no purpose in mind for it. It can just be thrown in the bin afterwards. I never right. read that. I've got piles and piles of books here of these three pages every day. I've never gone back to read over them. Oh, wow. I will one day, maybe, but I just sure. don't. I just write the next three pages. And it's, you know, it, hmm. it, it helps me sleep at night. <laughs> <laughs> sure, I know. I'm, I'm sure it does. And, and, you know, just to kind of explain that a little further, I mean, do you feel like having purpose is, it like, helps in a, in a difficult time? Yeah, I mean, if you set a um, task, you know, if you kind of tell yourself, like, I've got to do something, I think, I think so massively. Um, 
there's a very famous book about this called Man's Search for Meaning. And I, I don't remember the author's name and I should. He was a, he was a very um, young, he was a young, successful, up and coming um, psychiatrist at the, in the Second World War. And he ended up in one of the concentration camps. And most of the people around him died. And he was fascinated by this idea that some of the people who survived the camps were the ones who had some purpose. Mm-hmm. And often they could give away their last cigarette or their last piece of bread, and they'd still make it because they had a purpose. And he came, he, he survived, and he wrote this book and then came up with a whole type of therapy which is about finding your patient's purpose in life and the whole thing is that if you have a purpose you can endure stuff and it just having meaning to your life is is according to this guy is one of the main cures and one of the things that keeps us going and that makes for a happy life as well Mm. so i think finding a purpose was for me, so many people that I went through to when I got clean who were in, in with me getting trying to get clean as well, and very few of them made it. And I was very, very lucky that I had a purpose. I had this thing. I'm going to make a fucking record. And when it's done, I'm going to go back to doing all the bad stuff because I can't give up anyway and I'm hopeless and blah, blah, blah. I just need to make this record. And that by the time I got anywhere near to even writing enough for a record, I was better. And then I was getting a little bit better again. And, and it was having that purpose. And a lot of the other kids didn't have a purpose. There right. was nothing. They got bored out of their minds after a while going, I don't want to work at 7-Eleven anymore. I need to do something. Whereas I was always going, no, 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 I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to be successful. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And yeah. I found that was very, it was a lifesaver for me. Okay. Wow. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, I looked it up, by the way, Victor Frank Frankel. That's it. Yes. And I, my brother will kill me that I forgot his name. But at least I remembered the title. <laughs> yes, that's true. You got that. The first half is a memoir of his time in the camps. Yeah. Um, and it's brutal. And the second half is his philosophy. Okay. Uh, or not philosophy, his psychological theory and how he then put that into practice in a very successful um therapeutic school it's really interesting it's an amazing book okay i might have to try to give that a shot because it seems like it's gonna it's it's fascinating it's gonna right up my alley at this point in my life so (laughs) all right well i think we've done it um felix this has been a great honor to speak with you yes thank you so much for for doing this i'm so sorry for being late but um yeah it was it was a pleasure it's a pleasure getting to know you and and talk to you about such a, a great record thank you very much Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. I love talking about this record, as you can tell. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I work it so in so that you can me. talk about yourself as well. Let's talk about your record and the process too, which is great. It's always good to Thank know you. those things. Thank you so much. Not a problem. Um, is there anything you need to promote? Like, is there anything coming up that we need to know about immediately aside from this record coming out in the United the States? The record's coming out. And um, yeah, look us up and share us responsibly. Um, <laughs> any u.s I hope, tour I hope your listeners enjoy the music yeah oh i'm sure somebody will yeah i mean it's great stuff i mean Thank you. um u.s tour at all time in, in the I in the sites next year i think this year it's all still very difficult visas and travel and sure sure um so i think next year okay 
Well, I will uh, keep posted. I will you never know. You. Maybe towards the end of this year. Who knows what, what, they, what they rustle up for us. But my guess is Europe next and then America is my, is my guess at the moment. Yeah. Well, that's cool. I mean, I, I just hope to come see you out here at some point. That'd be great. That'd be great. All right. Well, thank you so much. Really nice to meet you. And thank you for having, having me on. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Felix. Great talking Brilliant. to you. Bye-bye.